We would like to acknowledge that this podcast has been recorded on traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hey, all you cool barks and Britons. Hi, how's everyone going? <laughs> Welcome back to I Used to Play Piano podcast for listeners of music, doers of music and lovers of music. We thought we'd check in and see how everyone was going in isolation and we thought we'd uh, grace your, you with our presences in your isolated times. That's right. And that is Iwana talking and this is Zara talking. Yes. <laughs> By now you should know our voice, voices though. Yeah. Someone was telling me that they get our voices confused and I think we have really different sounding voices. So. Me too. Hmm. I don't know, maybe it just, maybe we, we go back and forth so much that it just becomes one voice. Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Us, try and understand it. Make a noise and make it clear. Oh. <laughs> By the way, do you remember our um, professor when we were in our honours year together, um, Dr. Joel Crotty? Oh, how can you forget Dr. Joel Crotty? He played the bagpipes in the film clip for your The Voice. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> I knew you played bagpipes. There you go. Yeah, that's our little claim to fame. <laughs> that's great. Like our honours music research class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the same year. That was the year uh, you guys caught up with me. <laughs> caught up? Oh, yeah, because you were ahead of one year ahead of me. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, that's actually almost 10 years ago. Did you? Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's a long time ago. Wow. We're old. <laughs> Nah, we're young. <laughs> young at heart, I guess. Indeed. This, um, this episode might be a bit of an isolation fever dream, so apologies in <laughs> advance. <laughs> how, um, how are you going with ISO, Joanna? Yeah, I'm going okay. It's been a bit of an adjustment um, yeah. working from home, but it's, it's going okay. I think it's funny how like suddenly there's a lot of pressure on everyone to just kind of do things now that they have time. But yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think it's just, it's an unrealistic pressure sort of pressure. Totally. It's, um, you know, it's easy to think that we should be doing stuff, but my gosh, there's so much going on in the world. Yeah. Really possibly. No, I think just actually just stop for a second and just have that break that you've mm. sort of all wanting to have, if you have been wanting to have a break and just relax and binge and watch stupid TV shows like Zara's favourite Tiger King. And <laughs> you might have wanted to specify that we do not endorse Tiger King. Oh. <laughs> or any of those characters and their shady business. Horrible people. <laughs> anyway. Today we're going to be uh, talking a little bit about the... Um, wonderful charities that have popped up to help um, artists through the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we thought we might also talk a little bit about Tchaikovsky. Yeah. So um, a couple of weeks ago, Joanna and I were having a chat and we thought, hey, with all this extra free time on our hands, we could do a podcast every fortnight. <laughs> and it's already been two weeks since that conversation and we haven't done one yet. Yeah. So um, you can expect to have some continued sporadic episodes um as is our style yes but we're not we're not uh, putting any pressure on ourselves are we Sarah? no no pressure we're um we're gonna you probably won't hear us 
hear from us for another three months. So. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> Out of the pandemic by then. That's yeah, all right. Hopefully, hopefully we'll be back in person. And apologies if the audio in this is a bit um, unusual. We're um, trying to, this is our first time recording remotely. And if it goes well, it opens up the possibilities of who we might be able to interview. In yes, this, indeed. Which is exciting. Absolutely. Um, so, oh, before we get into all these different um, amazing support things, have you been engaging in music anyway during your ISO? I've actually been um, going through my old CD collection, seeing that I'm at home. I've got a DVD player, which they all play on. Cool. And I've just (laughs) been listening and going through some of my old CDs. So, Have you noticed a difference in the audio quality between the CDs and what you listen to? Oh, wow. Mostly because those sort of things don't really like come to me naturally I'm not yeah, someone right. who's just like oh also I have been playing it through my tv so it, oh yeah maybe <laughs> but I actually also for my birthday I um bought myself some downloads of the Hyperion um, romantic piano concerto collection oh so I bought, bought the, yeah I bought the first four volumes in this I think they're up to like 70 something volumes now well. <laughs> and the, you know there there's features a lot of piano concertos that aren't um you know haven't made it to the uh most common played and oh, cool. there's some really really interesting ones it's really cool I mean they're not too expensive but I think it's given the amount of minutes that you're getting in music, it, it was so worth it. And I think I will continue to uh, splurge every now and then on these. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, maybe you'll get some good ideas for future episodes as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. How about yourself? Have you been uh, engaging yeah. in music? I've actually, believe it or not, been playing piano. Yay. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I didn't realise like the first couple of weeks of ISO, I was pretty anxious. And I'm also trying to rework to get all of my therapy participants and my choir online, which we mm. I can say now is going really well. Actually. Yeah, good like, on you. We've all been extremely resilient and even my beautiful choir of elders are mostly all together on Zoom each week, which is really nice. Nice, that's cool. <laughs> so it doesn't sound as good as when we're all together, but, you know, it does work. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, I was really anxious and I didn't know what to do and I, I had heaps of work to do but I just couldn't focus. And I sat down at the piano and was like, ah, stop it. And I just played through um, the Chopin Nocturne, the C minor one. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. And my gosh, like, cause it's, I actually think it's quite an anxious piece. <laughs> mm. It really just kind of, I was able to just embody that anxiousness through playing it for a little bit, which was cool. That's and nice. then, yeah. And then since then I've just been trying to relearn uh, Brahms Rhapsody Mm-hmm. piano as well which is um yeah that's also been really nice can you sing kind of, a little bit of that how does it go dun, 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 dun. except imagine those are different octaves right. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. oh god I, what am i doing <laughs> um, it's the one that goes dun, 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 dun. you know i'm sitting next to my piano i could just play it that would be good <laughs> do it Zara um, is repositioning over to a piano. Except my laptop is on the stool, so I'm going to have to play it standing up. That's okay. I can even hear this. I can hear it. It's been really fun, and I hope that when um, I 
like learn it properly, I can maybe do it for an episode because it's been really fun and it's it's a nice piece for me with my wrist injuries and stuff in that it doesn't have anything in it that really triggers them. Like for yeah, me, right. I, don't, I think I talked about it on the show before, but like Alberti bass and stuff really wrecks my hands. Like yeah, I, it's I, hard. I, yeah, I can't do it. So um, this is Mozart like really is nice. out for you. Yeah, it's such a shame. I love Mozart. <laughs> yeah, like it, that kind of is like a big um, chronic pain trigger for me. So oh, it's wow. a really nice one that doesn't have anything scary. Yay. Okay, you yeah. definitely have to do it. Yeah, for sure. That Hold me to it. Cool. So... As you had mentioned before, we were wanting to talk a little bit about um, how this COVID-19 situation has impacted people working in the arts, particularly mm. musicians, um, because we know it's been really devastating for people who don't necessarily have full-time jobs or who might rely on performing as an income, mm. and not just the performers themselves, but also people who work in you know, um, different roles within that community, you know, like admin, um, yeah, research, sure. you know, people. At venues. Yeah, yeah, venues, things like that. Yeah. So there have been quite a few different um, charities that have popped up um, that you might not be aware of. And if you are in a position to, you should consider donating a little bit of your money to them. Um, so the first two that I'll talk about are um for music teachers, so it's called Stave It Off. It's a website or a database that has been, um, that was created by Tim Hanna. And he's basically just um, got a one-stop shop for all those people who are in a position to give music lessons online and for anyone who might be wanting to um, finally start having music lessons that they might have been thinking about a particular instrument. So it's a Facebook, um, on, a, on Facebook, so if you just um, search for Stave It Off, it'll pop up and you can basically just sort of select your um, instrument that you want to learn um, and then go from there. Yeah, and you just sort of uh, find a teacher and then I think that they just connect you um, together and then you, um, yeah, can start lessons. So that's a really good one. The other one is Freelance Artist Relief Australia. Um, this is actually a, a charity. So it's to it's started by Nicole, Nicole Carr, who is an Australian um, opera singer. And she has been obviously affected by all the um, cancellations and has lost some income. But she's also sort of, um, you know, not the only one, obviously. And she's um, started up this charity um, it's supported by uh, the Music and Opera Singers Trust um, and you can contribute either by bank transfer or PayPal at the moment and then the um, sort of whoever needs help can uh, will be invited to sort of apply for relief and your monies will be distributed that way. Check it out. Freelanceartistrelief.com um, is the website um, and there's all the information there. How, which, have you seen any, Zara? Yeah, so there's um, Support Act who've been around for quite a while, I think since 1997. Um, they, uh, well, they, they are Australia's only charity delivering crisis relief services to artists, crew and music workers as a result of ill health, injury, mental health challenges or other crises. Yeah. And they actually, like, for the last couple of years, they've had a Support Act wellbeing 
helpline that people can call if they're having um, any challenges with their mental health. Um, and we can post details to the website and the phone number on our social media. Um, and they also, you might know them from Oz Music T-Shirt Day, which like helps to promote Australian music. Um, and they've got a dedicated appeal for coronavirus-related um, challenges that music workers might be going through. Um, and actually, I just wanted to read out some of the stats. So according to their website, so far in Australia, the losses to the sector amount to over $350 million. Wow. And I know I've seen it a lot on social media and people talking about the fact that, um, you know, in Australia, we've just come out of the devastating bushfires. Um, and when that was all happening at the start of this year, the arts community rallied and raised so much money for um, people affected by the bushfires. Yet now when they've all lost work and income because of the coronavirus shutdowns, there's very little being done to support them and particularly by our government. So a lot of the relief mm. packages by the Australian government completely leave out people who are working in the arts. So um, Support Act is doing a really good job and they're trying to raise money to help provide crisis relief and mental health support to people. Um, and they have a rolling target, which is continually going. So that's a really um, good one to check out as well. And the other one I just wanted to raise, it's not so much um, specifically for artists, but Tempo Rubato, who mm. um, you want to, You've recently done a performance there just before, hmm. back when we were allowed to go out. Yeah. Um, they're also running a, a food drive at the moment, um, which is really beautiful. Um, they are already quite an altruistic org in that they raise money through their events to um, provide music lessons to newly arrived migrants. Mm -hmm. um, so now they're doing a food drive as well um, to support people through this time as well. So go check out their great work. And I'm sure there's heaps of other um, initiatives going on in the community as well. And, you know, we know that musicians and artists and creatives, they're a resilient bunch. So I'm sure we'll get through it, but we'll, we'll keep sharing links to things as they come up. And if there's something that you know about, please let us know too. Yeah. You share the love on. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think it'll, you know, I, I honestly believe it'll take a long time for um, even once restrictions and everything have sort of um, been loosened, it will take a long time for the performing arts sector to um, sort of get to a place of normalcy, I think. And so it's, I think our, our artists are going to be feeling it for the longest time. Mm. So anything that we can do to help them out, if we're, you know, if ever, anyone is in a position to is probably... Is definitely something worth thinking about. For sure. And tell tell people as well, because I think so many people take music and arts and entertainment for granted. You know, they think it's just something mm. either that people do because they're too lazy to get a real job or they just don't even think about the cost that goes into putting on a performance. And Yeah, there's so much. Yeah. I mean, but even beyond that, people have spent hours and hours and hours and hours just perfecting their art form and I don't think people actually think about all the time, the unpaid time, if yeah. you will, that goes yeah. into creating uh, or building your own career. And I think it's just taken for granted a little bit. So, um, yeah, anything that we can all do to help will um, yeah, we'll help. <laughs> uh, shall we move on to a bit of Tchaikovsky? Yes, yes, let's do. So 
why are we doing Tchaikovsky? <laughs> well, because um, the so I like the piano concerto in B flat minor, um, the Opus Twenty Three, the first one is probably one of my favourites. It's yeah. got some fairly memorable themes, um, but it's just fun to sing as well. And as a, a younger um, younger person in my teens, I remember coming across the recording. I don't even remember who the pianist was, but I, or I think it was like on one of the ABC classic, like mm. piano concerto ones. And it's, I could just sing it like, you know, along to the recording. I knew everything and I, I could hear where he screwed up and I could hear, you know, I loved it. <laughs> and it's just, yeah. So I think, yeah, when we were, when we were discussing which one, this one popped up very quickly. So, um, and I've been singing it in my head ever since. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really catchy one. And it's, I reckon it's got um, one of the strongest openings. for a Absolutely. Show, you know, um, oh, we should do that. We should make like a list of um, like top 10 best intros to classical pieces or something. Yeah. This thing definitely, in the loose yeah. definition. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, definitely would uh, be up there, I think. Yeah. Uh, so Zara, you did a little bit of research on the man himself. Do you want to tell us a little bit about him? Yes, please. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Tchaikovsky. So obviously he's an incredible composer. Obviously. A bit of a, bit of a queer icon as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. If I do say so. Um, but I, there's so much to talk about with Tchaikovsky and I wanted to keep it somewhat brief. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm just going to give a bit of an overview of his life, um, particularly his early years and his significance in music, particularly in Russian music as well. Mm. So I, oh, before I begin, I should acknowledge my sources. So obviously Wikipedia. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Um, and also you can read all the basic facts about Tchaikovsky. So I thought I'd try and mention some of the more interesting things that I came upon in my research. Um, so in addition to Wikipedia, I also took um, some research from the book, The Enjoyment of Music, the ninth mm -hmm. edition um, by Maclis and Forney. Yeah, and I also, use that one all the time for work. I that know. was the one we had for uni, hey? <laughs> it was an old uni textbook and it's, I'm probably getting more use out of it now than I did as a student. Uh, it's paying for itself still. So, you know... <laughs> It's not just a good um, booster seat for the piano stall that's not adjustable. <laughs> Pushes. Um, and I also used the website, um, the Tchaikovsky Research Project, which is really cool. And I couldn't find any, I think it's got a few different contributors on there, but I couldn't find any specific authors, but it is a really kind of nice website. So mm. um, I recommend you check that out. They're translating a lot of Tchaikovsky's old letters and diary entries and things like that. And it's funny because I wanted to try and find a book, but obviously we can't go to the library at the moment. But there was a book when we were doing our undergrad, our friend Lester from oh, Lester. Bernie's Musicland. Is he still? Yes. He's still there? Yeah. Shout out to Lester at Bernie's. <laughs> <laughs> he, he must have done a paper on Tchaikovsky and he had this book of letters that Tchaikovsky had sent to his family and friends. And I remember reading it and it was... Um, pretty fun. Like Tchaikovsky <laughs> sounded like he had a good time, <laughs> so, which according to musicologists, he didn't. So, you know, uh. I'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah. But apparently a lot of those initial things that have been translated haven't been translated correctly. Uh. Um, so the, the Tchaikovsky research project website, it looks like it's been around for a while, but it looks like they're seeking people to help um, translate things again and cool. stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. So 
let's get into it. So Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky, I apologize in advance for all of the mispronunciations in this. <laughs> yeah, Russian's um, not the easiest one to get your mouth it's, around. It's quite tricky. Mm. Um, so I'm sure you know he's Russian, obviously. Um, and he's kind of well known as, be as being one of the first Russian composers to make it big outside of Russia. Hmm. He was born in 1840 and his family were kind of like a kind of standard military family who lived in an, in an, in an industrial town, which I'm not going to try and pronounce. <laughs> I thought I might be brave, but I don't think. Oh, Watkinsk, I think. But yeah. So he was five years old when he began piano lessons and he was apparently pretty good at it. So within the first three years of learning, he apparently surpassed his teacher's abilities, which as a occasional piano teacher, that really frightens me. <laughs> child suddenly being better than you, but um, good for him, I guess. Um, and a really quick, this is going to be full of weird side notes, but a quick side note here. So when I was reading about his early music education, um, I read somewhere that he was learning on an orchestrion and I was like, it's an orchestrion. It's an orchestrion. Yeah, well, so I looked it up and bloody hell, Joanna, it is incredible. I'm going to Google it. I want one. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> so basically it's like a pianola, which is, for those of you who don't know what a pianola is, it's a kind of really big piano that you can put these scrolls of paper or something into and then you use the pedals of the piano and it automatically plays the song so you don't have to be able to play the piano. But mm. you can also play it like a normal piano too. Sorry, I just Googled orchestrion and the pictures are like full on. <laughs> they are, right? So the orchestrion is like a pianola, but they've got like a bunch of other instruments strapped to them as well. So there's like drums, organ, um, there's like woodwind things, um, a xylophone, you know, they're, they're all different. And I found some really, really cool videos on YouTube, <laughs> one including, um, I don't know if people are familiar with Pat Metheny, um, you know, legendary musician um he's done a project with an what are they called orchestrion <laughs> yeah right um but another couple of videos out there by a gentleman named joe Ronaldo. um i don't know if it, what he's playing is technically called an orchestrion it's called an american photo player but it's kind of the same setup mm -hmm. and i'm going to post these videos and links to our facebook page because they are incredible there's one of him playing um you know that circus i forget what the actual name of the piece is called called but with this whole like one man band piano thing it's really it's just incredible it's very very cool so that was my first um distraction in researching this <laughs> so getting back to Tchaikovsky um he was learning piano and getting pretty good at it, as I said. Yeah. But at the time, a career in music wasn't really considered to be a good idea. <laughs> How much has changed in the last <laughs> 200 years? Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, so he got sent to boarding school around the age of 12 and to learn to become a civil servant. Right. Now, while he was away, his mother passed away from cholera, which is mm. pretty, pretty tragic. And yeah. it obviously had a big impact on him. And mm. he's kind of well known, I guess, or talked about in the musicology literature as living with a lot of mental health challenges. And they obviously refer to like the death of his mum as being an instigating factor in that, which is, you know, that makes sense. Mm. Um, 
but he kind of was forced to go back to school really quickly after she died. So he didn't really necessarily get a good chance to grieve. Um, and he graduated and started working as a civil servant. However, things were <laughs> brewing in the Russian music scene. <laughs> I, I worked for a long time on this script, as you can tell. <laughs> um, so before Tchaikovsky was born, most Russian music was either folk or religious-based, um, and there'd been a bit of a ban from the Russian Orthodox Church, which cycled the development of kind of art music, um, which was kind of going on in the west of Europe at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that kind of ban isn't just unique to Russia. It was happening in um, Western Europe as well, just a few, maybe 100 years earlier or something. So mm. it was kind of similar situation just a little bit later. Um, and I say 100, I have no idea. I'm really bad to say some stuff, but you, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so at the time, like the early 1800s, the Russian aristocrats who wanted to listen to something that was a bit more highbrow, they'd invite Western musicians such as Clara Schumann over to perform. Mm -hmm. And that's why there wasn't a whole lot of options for a career in music in Russia at the time because it was all, it was either um, like really folky or religious or it was just imported from the West of Europe. But then came Mikhail Glinka, who in the first half of the 19th century started to shake things up a bit. So you might know Glinka by his most famous work, the opera Ruslan and Ludmilla, mm -hmm. which, quick side note, one of my favourite pieces to put on to cheer me up um, is the overture from Ruslan and Ludmilla. Um, <laughs> we played it in um, when I was in the Monashville Orchestra. Um, so much fun. It's just really upbeat and happy and trumpety. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we should also, yeah, we should do an episode on music to lift your mood. <laughs> we should do. Yeah. Yeah, right. a good idea. Write, write that down. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, just a really quick side note, because I'm guessing, oh, maybe we could just do an episode on the opera, but this is just really interesting as a side note. Um, so the plot for Ludma, uh, sorry, Rosalind and Ludmilla was written in 15 minutes by a poem, a poet who was drunk at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and another side note, is that while I was reading about Glinka, I read that what, he was in Berlin and he fell in love with this um, vocalist and he planned to go back to marry her. But when he got back to Russia, he realised he had to do a bunch of paperwork to be able to get back into Germany and he decided that he couldn't be bothered with the paperwork. So, <laughs> so he didn't. And that that is, woman. <laughs> I mean, it's sad, but also it's a mood I can relate to because I hate paperwork. <laughs> Say, so, it's sad. Oh, dear. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so back to Glinka. So he was kind of like, with this opera, he was the first big rock star of Russian art music. Um, but he was trained in a really kind of Western way. So he was writing Western-style music, but um, was using some folk elements such as whole tone scales, um, mm -hmm. which were really common with more Russian traditional music. Um, and people started then thinking in Russia, why are we importing all this German and Italian musicians? And why don't we have our own musicians in our own art form here? So this is a kind of a bit of a musical awakening in Russia, I guess. And during this time, this kind of gang of unruly Russian musicians started to form. They probably weren't that unruly. I'm just editorialising. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
and um, we know them today as the five, um, yes. but they called themselves the mighty hand, which I guess is where you get the five fingers from. Yeah, right. So they were um, Nili Balakriv, who was kind of the ringleader, Sasakui, Modest Mussorgsky, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov and Alexander Borodin, who are, as we know, all kind of well-known, cool comp- composers and stuff. Um, and apparently they didn't actually use that name themselves. <laughs> the, it was the mighty, given to the hands. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, maybe they did. Maybe they just didn't want to admit it. I don't know. Um, if you have a name like that, I feel like you'd want to admit it. The five. <laughs> um, so these five were starting to come up with this big movement to kind of emancipate themselves from other Western European music traditions, including German symphony. Mm-hmm. Italian opera and French ballet as yeah. the enjoyment of music that, so that they could express their Russian soul, <laughs> which is kind of cool, mm. you know, good for them. Um, but at the same time that these guys were kind of getting their agenda together, in 1859, the Grand Duchess Elena Pavlovna, who was the aunt of Tsar Nicholas II, um, she and a Russian pianist, Anton Rubinstein, kind of joined together to start up this Russian music society, which led to the creation of the St. Petersburg Conservatory in 1862. And both the the RMS and the CON were both kind of created with the aim of nurturing musical talent in Russia. And Tchaikovsky, who was working as a civil servant at the time, was like, damn, I want to do that. That's what I actually like doing. Mm. So he enrolled in some music theory classes at the RMS, and then he joined the CON at the age of 22. Right. So this conservatory, although it was like aimed at nurturing Russian talent, it was using um, and teaching Western music theory. Mm -hmm. Um, So Tchaikovsky was really, really interested and influenced by this, I guess. Yeah. So although he was really into incorporating traditional Russian music into his compositions, which I think you're going to talk about in a bit. Yeah. Um, he was influenced by Western theory. And so his, his music kind of is a bit of a blend of the two. Mm. And he described the, sty- the two styles as being intertwined and mutually dependent in his works. Um, and he kind of reportedly wanted to kind of incorporate his national identity in a way that would be palatable for a Western audience. So kind of bridging the gap. And a lot of music critics at the time kind of liked it because it was a bit more than, I think there was a bit of a trend for exoticism during that time, you know, where, Mm -hmm. you know, music from a different culture would be played and it would maybe in a bit of an exploitative way. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I don't think they thought about it in that critical lens at the time, but um, there was, so it's kind of an exciting new new thing for audiences and critics to hear. Mm. Mm. And Tchaikovsky, I mean, his works were sporadically popular. So some of his compositions were really, really popular and others were kind of less well-known. And so he kind of had this really fluctuating um, career, I guess, as a composer. And although he did have a lot of success, he still also copped a lot of criticism because of that blend of the two musical styles. So from a Western European perspective, people criticised him for not following convention. So, oh, shock, he tried to use sonata form and didn't stick to it exactly. 
Um, but then the the five or the mighty handful, they were also really critical of Tchaikovsky, partly because he came from the St. Petersburg Conservatory and they were kind of fighting against it at the time. So the five were philosophically opposed to music academia and mm-hmm. Bella Creep, who I mentioned before is kind of the ringleader, he actually was actively campaigning against formal music academia as opposed to just learning, being self-taught, absorbing your traditional music and things like that, which is, I think that's really cool philosophy to have. Mm. I think, you know, obviously there's good things about both, but so they were kind of saying, don't go and train, learn your own culture's music and, and, you know, create it. And so initially they were quite extremely critical of Tchaikovsky and his compositions. So when it comes to the first piano concerto, which we'll be talking about in more detail in a moment, um, after its first performance in 1875, Cesar Cui, who was probably the biggest agitator when it came to Tchaikovsky, he said this comment about it. He said, it has a lot of nice and agreeable things, but depth and power, it has none whatsoever. Wow. That's fighting words. Mm. (laughs) You know, especially power like I mean that intro dude but whatever <laughs> don't forget though that um the original like the, the the version of the piece that we know today is actually its third version oh I didn't know that yeah so it had two rewrites even though he um you know uh, and I'm not sure how much changed but it did uh, did have two rewrites and the third version came out at like 15 years after he wow. wrote it. Okay, I didn't know that. Mm. I wonder if um if that was because of all the the harsh feedback from Kui that he was getting. <laughs> oh, poor Tchaikovsky. Um, poor Tchaikovsky. He's really painted as being extremely sensitive to criticism as well. Like the yeah, psychologists is. talk about him going into deep depressions and all this stuff. And Yeah, I've got a few things to add on that as oh, well. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait. Great. Um, so despite all this, though, Tchaikovsky ended up becoming on, on good terms with most of the five, except for Kui. Um, mm. I think he said that um, he kind of got along with everyone, you know, Balakreev. And actually he and Balakreev worked together a few times, uh, most notably on the ballet Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. um, and which I think was Tchaikovsky's kind of like first big success right? Um, and in Russia and it was really, really well received. Um, so he kind of became, you know, friendly with the guys except for Kui. Um, and I think he said that, you know, everyone else would be all right, but, Kui would always be profoundly loathsome, <laughs> which again, like, I don't know who translated that and maybe that's some editorialising from some lonely musicologist. I don't know. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so even though Tchaikovsky was like super sensitive to criticism, mm. which, you know, can relate, whatever. Um, <laughs> he also worked as a music critic. So it seems like it's- a weird career choice. I, he's not the first. I think there were quite a few who were couldn't take criticism on their own work but were very happy to dish it out to others. I'm sure there's still a lot like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess um, it was probably also a good way to pay the bills. Yeah, And probably sure. also gave him a chance to travel and experience different styles of music, which no yeah. doubt influenced his compositions as well. Mm. Um, I've got some interesting excerpts of some of his reviews. So he liked Beethoven. He called Brahms overrated. 
which a little harsh. I feel like Brown's <laughs> got a lot of that. He yeah. wasn't the most loved composition. All he was trying to do was trying to bring back classical forms that were, you know, so popular in Mozart's time. And get close to Clara. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, it's such a gossipy episode. Um, <laughs> um, and he also liked Schumann but kind of ragged on his orchestration. <laughs> um, I think, oh, sorry, I did want to include this specifically for this quote about um, the ring cycle, Wagner's ring cycle. Oh, go on. Um, saying that so he went to a performance in Germany um, it may have been the first performance. And he, he liked the, you know, it's the classic critic, um, what do you say when you can't say anything nice? You comment on the sets. Oh, the set was lovely. The costumes were great. Um, but when it came to the music, Tchaikovsky described um, the ring, I don't want to say the whole time, the ring for the Nibelung, um, unlikely nonsense through which from time to time sparkle unusually beautiful and astonishing details. <laughs> Well, that's a very interesting point because, I mean, if Russia was just sort of catching up to Western music then and at the same time as Richard Wagner basically just pushing the boundaries in every single possible way, then, yeah, it's really interesting that that, that comment came from him because it was just sort of, you know, Richard Wagner was basically set a new form of writing opera. Like he, he completely threw out every single other <laughs> tradition that had been adhered to to that to that day by all the composers past and then he just basically like was like no I'm gonna do it this way can we do the ring cycle sometime because I'd love to hear your opinions because I just I've never just seen said, it I really want to see it well it takes it, like three days right like four there's four parts of it um yeah it's very very interesting but Richard Wagner is a very interesting composer Yes, and I think we'll we'll have some interesting um, opinions on that. <laughs> yes, for sure. Not for but, everyone. No, um, I can I can totally see what Tchaikovsky means, and bits of it are great. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> bits of it are long and drawn out, but yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think there's a composer that said for every good every fifteen minutes that's good in Wagner, you need to wait two hours to get to it. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> paraphrasing but <That's> yeah. great <laughs> can't remember who it was <laughs> um, yeah cool well so I guess like that kind of gives you a bit of context for what Tchaikovsky was living in and how he was composing um he had you know as I said his success kind of ebbed and flowed a lot mm. um he's nowadays like you know super well known super celebrated um his notable works include Swan Lake, Romeo and Juliet, um, the 1812 Overture, which I wanted to mention because our lovely sound engineer, Dan, used to dance around that when he was a little kid and the thought of that just makes me laugh so much. Oh, he's such a little nerd. I know. Cute. <laughs> Other kids were listening to Sesame Street and Dan was just Music prodigies. No. Um, also, like it's it's a great piece though. Like I do love eighteen. It is, and it's it's a good one if you like if you want to go to a journey. I think I remember once um, I was at the football, and it was a particularly bad game for Essendon. Um, so I put on eighteen twelve during the last quarter, <laughs> and <laughs> like because I had my headphones on and stuff, and I was listening to it, and Essendon came back and won the game, and it was just like the most epic like listen listening to the 1812 you know it goes through so many emotions of like the french and the russians battling it 
That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, it was really cool. So um, would recommend if like you need a bit of a distraction and you want to get, um, you know, involved in some, you need to get some battle gear on or something. Mm. Um, and of course he wrote a bunch of symphonies and works for piano. Um, we've all played the seasons or movements from it, you know, mm. um, good stuff. So I just wanted to finish on um, just some of Tchaikovsky's personal life because there's been so much written about it and I think musicologists spend way too much time speculating on which composers were gay and which ones weren't. So, um, which, you know, I think, I think it is important though in terms of a representation perspective. Um, you know, it's kind of accepted that Tchaikovsky was gay. He was married to a woman and then um, he divorced and that apparently a lot of his, you know, um, challenges in life were due to finding it not being accepted as mm. queer in his time. Um, the way that I find a lot of musicologists write it is quite scandalous. You know, they're like, did he feel, um, you know, tainted or something like that? And I was like, I don't know. Like it obviously wasn't a great time to be queer yeah. <laughs> politically. Yeah. Um, and I actually reading about it, it was interesting because there's a lot of talk about how censors, um, from Russia or the Soviet Union kind of tried to cover up the fact that he was um, known as being queer and actually Putin has released a statement, which I thought was interesting, or he maybe mentioned it in something saying, look, we acknowledge that he was gay, which I thought is actually, that's pretty big for Putin considering his politics on homosexuality yeah. and Russian. Um, and he said something like, he's gay, but we're not going to think about it. We're just going to listen to the music or something like that kind of something to along those lines. Don't quote me on that, but it was kind of, that was the, the, um, the sentiment, I guess, which wow. I that's kind of, at least they're acknowledging it and there's some representation for queer composers out there. Um, but I just find, I mean, I've talked about my experiences of reading stuffy musicology things about, you know, opinions on, old music so yeah um I just it was something that really kind of it was challenging for me to read all these ways of talking about homosexuality for someone who is no longer alive and contextualizing it and stuff like I think yeah it's an it's a a weird kind of thing to read from a 2020 perspective as well yeah um for sure yeah and I guess I should also just mention though that Tchaikovsky was supported by this um, woman, I'm going to try and say her name, Nadezhda von Meck, um, who was a widow of a railway magnate. He had a, obviously had a lot of money and um, she was contacting him, I think while he was still married as well, um, by mail. Um, and they would write to each other and he called her his best friend, which is really sweet. But because she was a widower and, oh, sorry, a widow, not a widower, and he was, um, married and then not married for some reason the convention of the time meant that it was improper for them to ever meet in person so oh. she she like funded a lot of his work she was a patron to him and they obviously had a really great relationship and I wish I could access some of those letters um, mm. to read some excerpts from them because I remember them being really sweet but um, yeah for some weird like convention of the time they weren't allowed to meet because it's improper so just wanted to flag that as well and yeah. Wow. Like times have changed in some ways and thank goodness. So, <laughs> yeah. Like seriously, what a stupid convention. <laughs> I know. Weird. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, and like the way all of it's talked about is just with a lot of innuendo and it made me feel really angry. So, mm. yeah, so that's kind of, I hope that gives you a bit of an overview of Tchaikovsky and his um, musical start. So, Ivana mm. is now going to do a bit of a deep dive into that first concerto. Well, it actually makes quite a, a lot of sense now that you've, you know, told me all of that because I, I focused my research more on the, the concerto rather than Tchaikovsky's life. And knowing that there was, you know, it took a long time for Western music to sort of become part of Russian music makes sense. Um, but I'll get into that in a sec. So the piano concerto was written in... 1874, and Tchaikovsky originally wrote it for his friend Nikolai Rubinstein, who was a pianist and conductor, um, and he, he had planned that Rubinstein would give its premiere in Moscow. And so one night he thought he'd uh, just get, get him over just to have a bit of a run-through of it. And um, Rubinstein, by talking about how, how sensitive Tchaikovsky was to criticism, Rubinstein said... Um, he basically declared that it was unplayable. And I quote, he said, passages were so fragmented, so clumsy, so badly written that they were beyond rescue. The work itself (laughs) was bad, vulgar. Only two or three pages were worth preserving. Their rest must be thrown away or completely rewritten. Needless to say, Tchaikovsky didn't take this news very well. He basically, um, just having out of spite, just published the whole thing as it was. Yes. <laughs> Do it. Oh, man, and I so love that. <laughs> the plans to premiere it in Moscow were um, quickly abandoned and um, he sent it to a friend in Boston who was also a conductor and pianist, Hans von Bulo, who um, basically had the opposite thing to say. And that might be because it was more maybe because of the Western part, like influence in the composition. I'm not sure, but I mean, anyway, Lulo basically said that he had a few like little criticisms to give. Um, but again, I quote, he said, perhaps it would be presumptuous on my part being unfamiliar with the whole scope of your works and prodigious talent to say that for me, your Opus 23 displays such brilliance and is such a remarkable achievement among your musical world works that you have without doubt enriched the world of music as never before. There is such unsurpassed originality, such nobility, such strength, and there are so many arresting moments throughout this unique conception. There is such a maturity of form, such style. It's design and execution with such um, consonant harmonies that I could weary you by listing all the memorable moments which caused me to thank the author, not to mention the pleasure from performing it all. In a word, this true gem shall earn you the gratitude of all pianists. Now, I feel like that would have stroked, you know, Tchaikovsky's <laughs> ego a little bit better than what Nikolai Rubinstein had um, originally planned. So, yeah, basically... Um, Bulo was, um, I don't think that I'm pronouncing that right, but he was in the middle of a, of a tour of America at the time and so he included it um, and it premiered in Boston um, in 1875. Um, and then, was Tchaikovsky there as well or that was just... No, like, I don't think he was okay. there. Yeah. Um, but Rubinstein did originally, <laughs> he did then go back and sort of withdraw his earlier, earlier criticisms. <laughs> Talk about um, mixed messages, right? <laughs> and then he agreed to, maybe he was just threatened, you know, his, his abilities as a pianist were threatened by this work that Tchaikovsky had written. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so he then sort of agreed to eventually um, per- 
perform it in Moscow and it, and it became part of his um, piano repertoire that he had. So pretty cool. Yeah, so he eventually, Tchaikovsky eventually revised the concerto first in 1886 and then again in 1889 in greater detail, which is, as I said before, is the version that we um, sort of are most familiar with today. Um, there, Rubinstein and Tchaikovsky's friendship was repaired, as you all may have been waiting on bated breath to hear, and um, Tchaikovsky eventually um, uh, dedicated his second piano concerto to Nikolai Rubinstein. So in regards to the actual work, um, it's interesting, again, as I go back to that comment of you saying how Russian folk song was a, a big sort of influence on the music of the composers of the time. It was, you know, I find it very interesting that that was all sort of Russian composers were allowed to compose until the mighty hand came crashing down. Um, and I think the, so the main theme of the first movement, Allegro con Spirito, apparently comes from an, um, a Ukrainian folk song that, Tchaikovsky heard one day um, being played by a blind street singer in the Ukraine. He thought he'd incorporate that into his theme. The middle um, movement, so the middle section of the second movement comes from a French song, which I'm not going to try and say it in French because my French is really bad, but it basically means one must have fun, dance and laugh, which is nice. And then the third movement um, takes two theme songs from folk songs. So the first one um, is basically a Ukrainian folk song called Go On, Go On, Ivan. And I managed to find... <laughs> Sorry, it just reminded me of Come On, Eileen. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Um, and I, I found a recording of some, some, a folk group playing it in a Russian festival and it's actually quite like hearing it. I was just like, oh my gosh, it's so true. Like it's just really cool. So ah. we'll, we'll include a link to it because um, it's definitely worth having a listen to that. And then um, also the second subject of the theme of the, that comes from a Russian song called I'm Coming to the Capital, um, which, and Tchaikovsky arranged a version of it um, in his 50 Russian folk songs for piano, which um, I'm going to have a, a play of. So have a listen. Yay. Yeah, so it's very loosely based, but you can sort of hear it. I had to listen to it a couple times to sort of, you know, um, be able to hear it, but I think it's sort of there. So it is really interesting that there's, there is a very strong Ukrainian and, and Russian folk song tradition that comes through um, in this work. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's really, I think it adds something to the work um, knowing that. Yeah, so that was sort of all um, I came across. I will add my that I acknowledged um, the references I drew from were from also from the same Tchaikovsky research um, project, as well as um, Britannica and the MSO had a bit of information on the concerto as well, given that they would have done the work a few times. So, oh yeah, Dan, I think it was, oh gosh, I can't even remember whether it was last year or the year before that Dan and I went to see it. And I cannot remember who was playing either, but it was mm. really good. It's always, it's always a fun one to see live, I think. Yeah, it is. It's a good one. Yeah. So that is the piano concerto. You should all go and have a listen to it now. 
Uh, it goes for about 35 minutes. Martha Argeridge has a pretty good uh, performance of it back when she was young. Yeah, I would recommend the Martha Argeridge one as well. Yeah, Obviously, like, she's good. my, you know, favourite pianist. So. She's such a diva. I love it. it was, yeah. She was going to come here a couple of years ago and then didn't. Look, I'm not surprised because she no, has yeah. a reputation. Do you know that apparently when um, uh, apparently now venues, what is it, they or oh, her agent makes sure that, um, they can't sue her for her sudden cancellations because yeah, um, it's just so like, no, nah, I don't feel like playing it today, so I'm not going to. But I would recommend listening to her because she's a brilliant pianist. as oh, incredible. Much that she is. And um, also I love that recording because you can see her fingers going crazy across the keyboard. So Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> she's such a talent. And actually I've been listening to her recording of the Brahms Rhapsody that I've been playing oh, yes. before as well, and it's just so good. Like her interpretations are just Spot on. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> it's so interesting. Like I tend to go to sort of older pianists um, to listen to recordings rather than sort of current day ones because I, I just, this might be a bit, a bit of a, I don't know if I'm opening a can of worms, but uh, let me get my can opener. But um, <laughs> I just, I always just feel like they give their interpretations a, or the performances are less safe. Like they're just not worried about making mistakes and that there is just like a lot of fire there in every performance that they give. I do. I do agree. I am like, I love listening to old Horowitz, Mm. you know, like I, I think that you're right. Like I think nowadays because we have so much, access to technology and recording like you just and you know like it's fair enough like I've when when we do our recordings for this I spend like 20 hours just trying to get one decent yeah recording of a piece and you know it's and then we can edit it and obviously because we don't have a proper studio we're just recording in our own pianos and stuff it's never that that we always have to you know maybe add in a bit of reverb and stuff in post as well and you just think this there's so much opportunity to try and tweak and perfect things. And I just, I love the, even if the sound quality is not that good, I much prefer hearing like a really old recording that, yeah, it has that fire. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's interesting. I think, you know, if we go forward and record, record things more, it's just that temptation to go back and do one bit over, whereas it's like, just leave it because it was one little bit and the rest of it was really good. Yeah, <laughs> and no one's going to like dwell on that bit. But anyway, it's a that's a big topic, perhaps for another day. For sure. Well, and I've seen a lot of um, like musicians doing performances over like Instagram Live or Facebook Live recently mm. while they're in lockdown, and I, it's been really refreshing to see people just doing it as they as they are. And the sound yeah. quality is, you know, it is what it is, and I like that about it. You know. Yeah, for sure. Mm. But do you think that was like the 50th take? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like just doing it live and seeing it, you know, it's, it's really nice seeing people just go and play live and, and also like them talking through as they go as yeah. well. It's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, it's been, um, it's been nice getting to know the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and we'll be back with some more recordings. Oh, which reminds me. So last episode, we were extremely excited to announce our open mic night challenge, um, which obviously now nothing's open. So <laughs> it might just be a mic night challenge. Yeah. <laughs> 
So we are inviting you, we would still love you all to continue working towards something and we're inviting you to send us your recordings um, so that we can feature them in an episode. Yeah, um, we know we've seen like heaps of um, musicians just having a little bit of extra time on their hands or recording songs specifically for COVID-19, you know. I've kn- a lot of my music therapy mates have been recording original songs mm. um, about the current situation, which has been really cathartic and beautiful to, to see. And um, I'm sure like many, many of our fellow musos are kind of taking the time to get reacquainted with their instruments. And yeah. So please um, get in touch. We'll post some things on social media. You can send us a recording of yourself. It doesn't have to be great because as we just said, we prefer the rough and ready <laughs> live recordings just bring the fire bring the fire indeed <laughs> yeah. yeah send us your recordings of yourself playing so it doesn't matter what style it could be anything we just want to hear it you know we want to hear how you're being creative particularly in this time yeah so stay tuned for more details we'll have um some information go up on our social media pages um in the coming weeks uh, I think that leaves us to our last section, Zara, the most favoured of all sections, Zara. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> what's, that <theme? laughs> what's, that, what's the theme music for it again? Let's see what we, we've got to. Let's see which one we right, you, you sing one and I'll sing one, but we won't tell each other and we'll see yeah. if we get it right. right. One, two, three, four. Scare Scare of them. <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> Every time, at least it's every time. So, which one are we doing today? I don't know. Did I, I did the last one, so you've got to do one this time. Okay. Which, which maybe we'll do B flat minor, given that we did the Tchaikovsky concerto. Yeah, and go for it. Minor. Okay. Can you, can you play the intro to the Tchaikovsky concerto? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. B flat minor. I've just taken my mic out, the headphones out, so you can hear it. Yeah, that's cool. You can still hear. B flat minor. How many flats are in that again? Uh, <laughs> today. <laughs> Is that right? Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah, brought the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Bring in the fire. Um, I was going to say, we should, like, send us, don't forget to send us your scales of the month. We haven't um, shared one in a while. So please mm. send us your, yourselves playing that B-flat minor scale. Um, Check it up. Hashtag Check scale it. of the Check episode. It. Check it up. <laughs> um, we could also do, we should do, like, a an improv challenge. Like, improvise something on B-flat minor. Send Be as improv as Nick Martorano was with his scale. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. Do that. Send it. Cool. <laughs> All right. Um, where can our listeners send their scales to, Zara? Um, hit us up at our email address, I used to play podcast at gmail.com. That's I U S E D T O P L A Y P O D C A S T. I think I got, <laughs> got it right. right. <laughs> at gmail.com. Gmail. <laughs> because I can't pronounce used to. Like yeah, it's, it's a hard one. Too. Yeah. Maybe maybe not for non-Australians, but for Aussie accents, it's a oh. terrible one. Um, and uh, our social media, you can hit us up on Instagram at I Used to Play Piano and on Facebook at I Used to Play Piano as well. 
Awesome. Well, until next time, we'll uh, just keep playing and try and think of more things to talk to you about. Just keep playing, just keep playing. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, I bid you goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.